Hi, and welcome to the TXF Fit Zone Financing International Trade podcast. I'm Catherine Morton, Head of Trade, Treasury and Risk at TXF. I'm joined here in London by Aidan Applegarth, owner and managing director of BankingWise, to talk about trade funds. Maybe if you could paint me a picture of the state of the market. So, um, what are trade assets in actuality? And who are the old and new players? Uh, Okay, interesting question. I think in terms of the evolution first, there have been trade funds around for quite a while now, even before the turn of this uh, millennium. And it seems that whilst in the past a lot of those trade funds may buy assets from banks, nowadays a lot of those trade funds are looking to uh, intermediate to fill the gaps that the banks have left. So the evolution would seem to be that uh, there are trade funds, and I think we probably have to define what really is a trade fund, because to answer the question about assets, different players are looking at different aspects of trade as the asset. And so if you look at the trade products, not all trade products are really investable. If you have, uh, for example, if you took the ICC trade register report and you look down the the particular uh, products that are there, Really, to be investable, you need the transparency, ideally uh, asset-backed. You need to have uh, some self-liquidating component. So a number of those uh, products, uh, import LCs, for example, are they investable? Probably unlikely. On the other hand, you look at export LCs, particularly confirmed export LCs, and payment guarantees, which seem to be among the most popular of investable asset classes. And I think you then have uh, investors who see the, uh, an appetite to have that kind of, uh, of asset behind them. What's changing, the evolution in the last few years, is that because of the so-called uh, trade finance funding gap, particularly in the SME space, you now have a plethora of new funds emerging who are looking to plug that gap. So in fact, they are looking at loans. They're providing uh, loans, usually asset-backed, usually self-liquidating, ideally relatively short-term tenors that will perhaps get a bit of a churn. Um, But they are specifically targeting a market which, because of the banks being burdened by regulation, they're no longer able to support and fulfil. So uh, if you look at quite a number of funds that have come out, particularly in the last uh, 12, 18 months, a key criteria for each of them is to say, we're targeting this SME space, we're targeting commodities, we're targeting uh, trade flows, which the banks are today not able to support. Interesting. You were talking about trade assets as an investable class. I've heard comments which say trade assets don't exist as an investable asset class unless you can see them on a Bloomberg screen. Where are we at with that? Uh, Yes, well, I I think that's because what does Bloomberg look at for a start? Bloomberg is covering very well-established, defined markets. And it's clear that trade finance as an asset class is in its infancy. Um, It's going to take a while, I think, for it to get to a point where it registers on Bloomberg. But I think one day it will. And my reasons for saying that are that in the past, if you look at how trade finance um, was positioned by various banks, trade finance invariably was part of 
a general corporate banking portfolio. You couldn't really distinguish your trade finance assets from your corporate loan assets. In fact, it's only really since the uh, 2007 crisis that banks have started to gather information in a very discreet, defined way to say, this is our trade book, this is our corporate book. So you've never really had that separation. Now that that uh, opportunity exists, the data exists, the ICC in particular, through their excellent trade register report, have started to provide information which people can start to use and leverage from. Now I have a, a bit of a bugbear about that is that I do still see quite a number of emerging funds saying this is a low risk, almost no risk product because it's only 0.02% default, which is the um, rate that the ICC shows across those trade products. But of course, a lot of these funds, they're not offering those products per se, they're offering loans. And at the moment, apart from the import and export loans, the ICC has not been able yet to capture, for example, default rates for receivables finance for borrowing base or for commodity trade loans. The nearest thing for commodity trade loans I was actively involved in in 2015 was a, getting a core of commodity banks together. And we were challenging back on Basel regulation, particularly around CRD4 and the the inability, or their, their closure, let's say, of the low-risk default models, the internal models. That, to me, has been, on the one hand, a, a disaster from a regulatory perspective. The unintended consequences are that banks may, over time, leave this secure commodity space altogether um, because they won't be able to get the benefits of collateral. And that, to some extent, has been pushing people like myself, people, former commodity trade bankers, to set up funds to say, we know what we're doing. The regulators may not have taken the opportunity to look at how these low um, default rates are arriving. And therefore, we have an opportunity to push this market away from the regulatory point. But I, I do insist that there needs to be a better um, mapping of what are the real defaults. It's not 0.02%, it's more likely uh, around 0.8% for uh, commodity trade loans, and uh, which still compares very favorably, for example, with the, uh, with the Standard & Poor's. So from a Bloomberg perspective, they will start picking up on trade funds once we see that investor growth behind it, uh, once the chatter around trade funds becomes much more positive, and when the banks start buying in and supporting, because for the moment they are standing back from even supporting the funds, uh, I think a lot of that is a lack of understanding. So uh, with a bit of um, education, a better construct around the funds, I think one day, yes, Bloomberg will start supporting trade finance assets. I mean, just winding back slightly, I mean, banks want to offload trade assets from their balance sheets for bar mm. reasons, um, but who apart from other banks actually wants to buy them? There are investors out there. Um, they may be institutional investors, pension funds and others who are looking for trade finance assets as part of a, of a balanced portfolio. And I think the survey that uh, TXF had done with EFA earlier in the year had highlighted that that there were indeed those investors who felt that they had a, a sufficient understanding of trade finance that they would take on certain assets and, and no doubt um, with certain parties that they could depend on. So they would come into a bank they liked, a bank that they knew could originate and a bank that understood the business. 
Whether those same investors will start coming into some of the newly emerging funds to take on assets remains to be seen. But I think that as the chatter does increase around trade finance assets, we will see perhaps more funds coming in, dipping their toes in the water, uh, probably not big amounts to, to start off with, but certainly coming in and testing out this market. Um, if you're an, uh, managing an, an, uh, an investment portfolio, you're looking to have that blend of some good high-yielding assets, you want stability, you want something that is relatively safe. Trade finance, I think, meets that criteria. I've seen comments where some people said it's no risk. Well, it's never no risk, but it is low risk. But then the caveat I would say is it's low risk if the parties managing those funds, particularly managing the deployment of those funds into the loans, know what they're doing. And that's the real differentiator. If I have one concern about the segment, it's that there will be people um, coming into this business because they see it as an opportunity, but they won't have the pedigree and experience behind it to run it properly. And if those people are uh, in a position where they screw up on delivery of funds, then that's going to harm the establishment of trade finance as an asset class going forward. So it really does make a difference who's involved, who's underpinning this, and do they have the people who can go around and kick the tires, really chase these things up when needed. Interesting. So, I mean, how do the newly emerging alternative debt funds that we were touching on earlier go about actually taking bank, getting banks to take them seriously? Then? With difficulty. I know that from experience. There are very few banks today that will take on board any of the trade funds. Um, why do the trade funds need the banks? Because they need a party who can execute on their behalf. What the trade funds will be good at will be uh, originating investors and in many cases originating deals. Now I know having spoken to a number of banks and a lot of these are key banks and they're represented in the ICC Banking Commission. Um, so despite the ICC Banking Commission looking to promote trade finance assets, I see a conflict there at the moment because the parties involved are not really engaging, they're not understanding what are the issues around the funds. They're a bit too blinkered by saying the funds, oh, that means they'll be getting drug money in, they'll be passing funds through, they won't know the provenance of the funds, there's no transparency, there's no regulation around their deployment, etc., etc. Not at all true. If you look at many of the funds that are being set up here in the UK, they are regulated by the FCA and through the Alternative Investment uh, Fund Managers Directive. So there is regulation around it. A lot of these parties are investing heavily in the appropriate uh, management due diligence systems using WorldCheck, using Bureau Van Dyke, using other parties who offer these kind of services. And they know full well, because many of them are, are former bankers, that the success of them as a fund depends on them being able to deploy in a systematic way and a very diligent way to ensure that they get money coming through at the end of the day. And in order to do that, they know full well that they don't want to get caught by sanctions. They don't want, uh, particularly with a very dollar-denominated business, they don't want dollars being held up by the Fed because a party to a transaction was caught on a financial crime sanctions AML list or something like that. So I would say some of these funds, in fact, are probably even more diligent than the banks in that regard. Um, and they do it because for many of them, they're entrepreneurs, it's their business. They want to see the success of it. 
Um, so I'm uh, today I'm disappointed in the response I'm getting from banks to supporting funds. There's one bank, only one bank I know, and it's overseas at the moment uh, that will uh, support. But uh, for the mainstream, uh, I think they need to get their act together because there is room for collaboration here. These funds are not treading on those banks' toes because those banks have already rejected this segment of the market. It's too cumbersome for them. Um, and the banks have an opportunity here, in many cases cash covered, to be able to take funds in to support um, issuance of letters of credit, guarantees and so on. They can handle the treasury flows. And I think there's a win-win for both parties involved if they can take the time to sit around the table and particularly for the banks to understand what it is that these funds are all about. Interesting. So Mentioned banks, but fintech providers, to what extent uh, can they give support and, and what are the next steps for fintechs to give support? Um, yes, fintech is an interesting area now because there are a lot of uh, fintech companies emerging in the financial services space, many of whom can't get into the banks. They can't get into the mainstream banks. Why? Because a lot of these banks are locked into legacy systems or they already have their providers and, uh, and they look to providers with a track record. So in some cases it's difficult for some of these emerging fintech firms to get involved and that's where I think there's a good opportunity with the funds because where banks, um, many banks still use Excel spreadsheets to manage commodity portfolios. Um, in this day of uh, compliance, um, audit reviews and so on, it's really not an efficient way of doing it. And so there are opportunity coming in where there are fintech providers, some who are providing those facilities. Um, in terms of funds management, this afternoon I'll be seeing a company that is offering a platform for commodity trade financing, where you have the, the borrowers, particularly SME borrowers, putting in the details of what they want. Um, and it goes through a kind of clearing system, a due diligence system for lenders then to be able to come in and, and, and pick what do they want to invest in, what don't they want to invest in. Um, you already have the firms that are offering the KYC platform, so well checkers in with the banks, well checkers also in with the funds. Um, you have uh, other firms that are there coming at the um, trade funds aspect from different angles. But I do think that for many of the trade finance funds, they're aware they need to be uh, transparent. They need to uh, be auditable by investors. When investors come in and do their due diligence, you don't really want to have to, to say, well, this is the guy that does all the uh, detailing with the investors. He handles them. Oh, and it's the same guy that is deploying the loans and does everything else. Um, if you are after institutional pension fund type investors, you need to respect their own requirements for due diligence, for division, if you like, of labor, um, Chinese walls between front and back office and so on. So I think the whole setup of the trade finance funds can be enhanced by good fintech support. And that is something which is yes, still evolving, I would say, you know, as, uh, as the parties put their heads together and realize that solution A that was uh, designed for a particular purpose maybe overkill for what the funds want and things can be adapted, um, it would be great. And one of the things I've been looking for of late is to find the software that can blend the fund management aspect of it with the deployment through loans and collateral management. Put it all together rather than have this segmented uh, approach of different systems. So it's always amazed me how, how, how low tech, um, you talk about Excel spreadsheets, 
we talk about the, the, key, the transparency is key, um, but a lot of uh, how can price discovery be made uh, better? Because we, we uh, earlier in the year I was in Singapore and uh, most banks were talking about uh, price discovery via WhatsApp, which is also, it seems the least transparent way. <laughs> <laughs> price discovery is interesting. Who price discovery for what purpose? Really, I think is the issue. Um, if you're talking about a fund, the investor, from his perspective, price discovery is what's my return? What am I going to get? What's my outline? What's my return? If you're the fund, you're looking to answer that question. So, and having looked at different funds and how many of those funds report what their returns are, my advice anyway to investors is it doesn't matter what number you look at, go and understand how that number is achieved because you'll see funds that are saying we can give you 20% uh, return net of fees, net of everything. How? How? That sounds high risk to me. Um, it doesn't sound real to me either. So I think you have other firms that are somewhere more around the 7 to 10% returns. And again, depending on what profile of risk asset you're looking for, you have to moderate your uh, aspirations and expectations in terms of a return. So just having a number on a WhatsApp says nothing, unless you know how is that number achieved. Is it because I have to keep my funds rolling up all the time? They have to keep, uh, effectively, it's a cumulative return. When they talk of net return, is it a genuine net return, net return of what? So I would be saying anyway to investors, WhatsApp, yes, fine. It might give you an invitation to treat, if you like. It suggests, oh, maybe I should go and inquire of that fund or that fund. But the real crux of the matter is, how is it achieved? Is it a genuine return that I can get uh, comfortable with? The other, other dimension that, that was mentioned uh, quite a bit in terms of getting investors in is, is ratings and, and the fact that uh, it's, it's a slightly thorny issue. Mm. Um, how can ratings be addressed? Will ratings ever be attached to, the, to specific funds or to specific transactions? It's a tricky one. It's a tricky one because I can see the difficulties. Having worked in the sector for many years, and particularly in my time at UBS when we were trying then to securitize parts of a loan book, it's not so easy, particularly when you have, um, as you would have in the fund space, loan books that are evolving in their risk pro profile through the tenor of the loan. So you may start off on day one, you're largely unsecured, that maybe goods are sitting with a, a freight forwarder somewhere at a port. Then they move on board a vessel, you've got a bill of lading, you're more secure, and then maybe as it migrates through that process, you've got a, an inward uh, um, letter of credit, a confirmed one. So your, your risk profile is changing all the time. How do you identify the right bucket to put that risk in? So um, it's a challenge. Perhaps FinTech might solve that problem if, you, if they can be sophisticated enough to keep shifting assets in and out of certain classes. The best way I see to do it is to actually profile a fund to meet a certain risk profile. So you may have funds which are fully asset backed with very liquid assets, maybe all exchange traded and so on. So that might represent a particular bucket that you can say that's rated pretty good. Um, and then you look at others where it says maybe these are not um, exchange traded commodities. Perhaps it's uh, other products in bulk. They still function like a commodity, but they're not um, hedgeable on an exchange. That's a different class altogether. Provided people think more in terms of approximated buckets, then I think it's on the road to getting a rating system 
developed. It should be allowed to evolve. It should be allowed to be something that can be tried and tested before it gets bolted down. And I think, I know um, there are other bodies, I believe the ICC too, is looking at a way of standardizing, harmonizing this space. I know it's a demand also from investors to find some kind of standardization. If by that they mean we want to know what bucket this risk profile falls in, then I think it's a good thing for the industry generally to do. How then those deploying funds are able to categorically say this sits in this bucket and is not somewhere between, it still remains to be seen. But as a, as a, a goal, as an objective, yes, I think it would be a good thing. Mm. And, and coming back to the, to, to the, to the bile issue, bile remains a, a fly in, in the ointment for the whole sector. Are banks going to have to basically suck up bile three and whatever happens with four? I think so. Um, the problem with regulation as it stands today is it's a one-size-fits-all in a sector where clearly it's not all one size. And having been involved in the past trying to get the regulators to see things a bit differently, the ICC had some success in that, but it's a very moderate success compared to the unintended consequences of CRD4 and current regulation. And at the moment, the regulators, I think the biggest weakness of all is the regulators have not taken the time to sit down and understand how have those low loss default portfolios been low loss? What are the mechanisms? What are the activities going on behind the scenes that make that happen? So for example, the fact that you've got in many cases um, a double default, perhaps a triple default before you have any impairment uh, in looking at a lot of commodity trade seems to be beyond them in their, in their understanding. They think somehow there must be something underhand going on, which is not at all the case. Um, however, having said that, I'm advising the funds that I'm in touch with to start thinking about regulation. Because the way things go, as the chatter increases in this space, it's inevitable that at some point, somebody's going to turn around and say, oh, look at this unregulated market, shouldn't we do something about it? Um, it is regulated in terms of the fund manager by the FCA, but not necessarily what is going on in terms of transactions and so on. Um, I wouldn't want to see regulation become the stricture that it's become for banks. It's really been overkill. Considering it was the virtual economy that screwed things up for everyone, it's now the real economy that's being hit. Why? Because that's what you can touch and measure. Um, and I think a lot of it has been perhaps uh, too much too late in any event. But yes, I think Basel uh, is hitting the banks. This is creating the opportunity for the funds. Um, I'd like to think that that opportunity will continue for the funds before anyone comes in with a heavy hand and says, right, let's start knuckling down and, and, and putting some uh, strict frameworks around this. On the other hand, you look at some investors, if you're going to try and get some of the bigger institutional investors, they might be looking for some level of regulation. And I think the real issue here is to find that right balance. Today, regulation on the banks is overkill, one size fits all, big mistake. If they can find that blend that says this from a, is regulated, investors can take comfort from putting funds into this market, but it's not so strict that everybody's hands are tied, in the, in the way the banks are, 
then uh, that's got to be something which uh, I think will be a boon for the market overall. So in, in conclusion, you're, you're optimistic that, that, that this sector will, will continue to grow? I am. I am optimistic. Why? Um, because there's a huge demand among SMEs in, in particular, um, that the SMEs feel some, in many ways, um, not represented by the banks, perhaps cheated in some ways by the banks. They want people that understand their business, perhaps similar entrepreneurial approach to it. And uh, the trade funds, I think, can offer that. They can offer a greater speed and flexibility in terms of uh, putting together the loans, the package. They're perhaps more there in an advisory capacity as well to be able to have that dialogue. They're more liber liberated, in a sense, to be able to have open dialogue with, uh, with the customers from the fund's perspective. So, uh, yes, I do see it growing. I think the banks, the bank's worry, as I said earlier, is really that you know that nobody wants to be caught by something going through their book in their name where the Fed in particular is going to turn around and say, how could you allow this to happen? And that somebody loses their US license or something like that. That will be the big concern of the banks. So I think there's going to be that space where they would say, from a trade-off position, it's not worth getting into that market. Let's leave that to the funds. Um, and what I would like then the banks to do is to say, okay, we understand now more about the funds. We understand there's proper regulation there. We understand they're not cowboys. Let's find a way to collaborate together. Aidan, thanks very much indeed. Thank you.